Hey, John Matalavich here today with another episode of the Human Advancement Podcast. Today I'm joined by strength and conditioning coach Colin Federiska. I met Colin a few years ago and consider him to be an excellent peer in strength and conditioning. Colin focuses largely on training combat sport athletes. This is a category that broadly refers to MMA competitors, boxers, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and even more real-world tactical populations like military, TSAC, or police. Colin is currently based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and this podcast with him is a great resource for anyone looking to expand their knowledge within the combat sports or strength and conditioning realm more broadly. Our conversation extends from current trends in strength and conditioning to the value of corrective exercise. Within the discussion, Colin mentioned some of his favorite exercises. We also talk about achieving balance within the gym, our favorite conditioning tools, and more. Now, here is the full-length conversation with our friend Colin Federiska. Hey, John Matalavich here from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach uh, out of Philly, uh, Colin Federiska. Uh, I met Colin while he was still living here in Schuylkill County. Um, you know, he was on a bigger and better down in Philly, but I like, uh, I like what Colin does, and I like specifically what he does with combat sport athletes. So that's largely what we're going to talk about today. What's up, Colin? Hey, what's going on, John? How are you? Oh, you know, just all this, all this, I, one thing I don't want to get into too much, but it seems to kind of take over uh, a lot of these conversations as of now is all this COVID stuff. So what's your, what's your training life been like personally and for some of your clients since, since all this has started? Yeah, it's uh, it's super weird. I know everyone's dealing with this. I primarily train in person. That's just how I prefer. I like to be in the trenches there. Um, but since this has taken off, it's been a lot more, you know, virtual training, um, scripted programs via the internet, things like that, which are all great. And I'm glad we're able to still do that with technology we have, but I do miss this, uh, the in-person interaction. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, you know, hard for, for someone like me and just for my company in general, where it is, where we come at it from such a qualitative approach that it really does not lend itself to kind of some of this, this mass market online stuff that we're seeing now. I have found some ways to kind of make it work in, with some of our injury prevention protocols, but for the most part, I, I agree with you where it's not. It, it's not really feasible when you're trying to focus so much on, on putting out a good product and a good service. Absolutely. I mean, your clients become used to that as well. And then it's a, it's a big change. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we'll, we'll see how we proceed, but I think uh, once we kind of get back at it in the real world, I think it'll, I think it'll come back a little faster than some people seem to think. No, I agree. So I'd like to talk about kind of your intro into the combat sports realm. Uh, where I first met you was at, at what I guess we could consider a uh, uh, basically a fighting gym as an uh, interesting uh, swath of characters that kind of come from it. And I, <laughs> I, I think that's probably the same across um, most fight gyms. But what can you say yes. about your history in terms of, of combat sports and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Sure, sure. So I, um, you know, I always was was training, uh, you know, myself and I was very interested in uh, mixed martial arts and jujitsu. So I was, you know, training like everyone else was. I was going to classes, I was getting ready for competitions, so on and so forth. And I really saw, and this is, this is a long time ago now, I really saw there was a need for someone who knew how to train athletes for this sport. There was so much misinformation out there and just so many people doing, you know, not necessarily the, the wrong thing or a, a bad things. They just didn't know any better. 
So they were, people were training very traditional, like bodybuilders and powerlifters for a very specific sport. So I thought there's definitely room here for improvement for how people can, can get ready to compete for these, uh, these sports. Yeah. Even though, even though I think the bodybuilding style training might not necessarily be the best, I, you saw, you know, very early on in strength and conditioning for sports that even people that were doing these very rudimentary and unscientific programs, even they were having benefits over their counterparts that weren't engaging in any kind of weight training whatsoever. But to kind of take it one step yeah. further, I would agree. Um, one of the things I, I like to say, and people probably heard me say it before and they'll hear me say it again, is the idea that, you know, football kind of figured out the idea that strength and conditioning was a good idea, uh, probably in, in the early 70s. And then baseball picked up on it shortly after that. Baseball took it and ran with it to the point where they, you know, got really into doping. And on top of that, they, they were getting their athletes huge. And right. so over time, some sports have kind of realized the value of strength and conditioning and building a stronger athlete. And for whatever reason, the, the other sports just kind of tend to be falling behind with it. And it's just, you know, it's, it's nothing but upside. And to make it an athlete even better with even more strategic, intelligent training, and it's it, it, hands down, it's, it's, it's remarkable what it could do. No, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing to note too is before, like, you know, we go any further on this, this doesn't necessarily apply to the average person who wants to train jujitsu once or twice a week. And, you know, they want to do some, you know, their whatever lifting or bodybuilding on the side. That's totally fine. I don't want you to change up. If you're, if this is strictly recreational for you and you don't plan on trying to pursue a career in mixed martial arts or compete, you know, that's, that's okay. You don't have to make drastic changes. This is probably a little bit more, you know, tailored to someone who, I really want to be involved in sport. I want to compete. I want to, I want to do what I can. This going forward probably more pertains to you. Uh, that, that makes sense. And that's, that's what we, the kind of the population that we tend to work with the most. Sure, mm -hmm. we, we deal with average Joes, but even, even in those circumstances, what we're looking for is, is building a, a stronger and a better athlete. There's nothing that isn't improved by that. Even if you are just a desk jockey and you like to kind of you know, do some, do some MMA work on the side or whatever. I mean, you're, you're going to be better served by doing a, a well-rounded strength and conditioning program. I have one, so one of the early things that I'd like to get into is you, could you, could you talk me through not necessarily how you design a program, but, but what are some exercises that you like? And uh, specifically let's start with strength training exercises and then we'll, we'll kind of lead into a conversation about uh, some kind of conditioning work that you like with your athletes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm very big on hitting traditional basic strength training. It's been done for a long time. It's done well. It's proven. So I like, depending on, you know, issues, mobility, different restrictions or what, you know, what the athlete has going on prior. I like traditional squats, maybe a, a front squat, a trap bar deadlift, uh, weighted chin-ups and some, you know, some type of row, single arm dumbbell row. So very traditional lifts. I don't need to go, I don't need to go crazy. I don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Those all carry over really well to combat sports in general. Yeah, I think people do try to reinvent the wheel, and that's kind of where um, I think from a coaching perspective, the idea of complexity seems like it's cool, and, and the more you learn how to program, it seems like you know you're you're kind of impressing yourself by making things overly complicated. Where in reality, people people at the peak of their performance are are doing things that are are, are proven have been proven effective over time. Right. I mean, it might seem very mundane to be doing this, but it is, it is absolutely proven over time. I, I, you know, it might look cool to shoot some of the videos and some of these, some of the crazier exercises, things like that, but, you know, functionally and performance-based, I'm going to go with the try and true methods all the time. No, I agree with that. Um, 
So let's talk about, you mentioned uh, one arm row, mentioned squat. Um, and one of the things that I like that you mentioned is that trap bar deadlift. I don't think there's a single athlete on the planet that couldn't benefit from uh, regularly performing trap bar deadlifts. Yeah, absolutely. I think this one gets, it gets some, uh, some grief here and there, um, you know, with purists prefer, you know, a traditional deadlift, so on and so forth. I, one thing prefer about the trap bar is that I, a lot of my athletes that I work with for the sport, I don't necessarily, you know, get to see all the time. So I feel there's some room for error there. It, you know, the, the build of the trap bar itself, you know, tends to build into pretty good form, right? I'm sure you've seen that over time. It's, it's a little bit, you know, easier to program that and train that for someone you're not with all the time compared to, you know, a traditional deadlift or, you know, of, of that uh, nature. Even, even when you look at like the force velocity curves of something like the, the trap bar deadlift where you don't, have the, you don't have the resistance from the bar kind of rubbing up against the thighs, you can actually build, um, you can build more speed. I guess we could call a sports specificity just, just by the nature of, of being inside of the bar and having right. the, the, the weight kind of aligned with the center mass and the, what we call the, that frontal plane. Yeah, correct. No, I, I just think, yeah, for, for uh, program purposes, room for error, you know, we're, it, it's definitely the best way to go there. So, um, so this leads into what we talked about, you know, people have different names for this. They call it cardiovascular training, or we could just broadly encompass it by saying conditioning work. What, what do you like to do for conditioning work for, uh, for some of your athletes in in combat sports? Uh, so traditionally I want to be clear, a lot of the conditioning gets done via the sport itself. I don't try and overstep and make, you know, make things happen, happen that shouldn't they're training their sport to get better. And in that they'll be conditioned there. Um, when I'm trying to perfect something or really try and peak, I prefer to use a sprint or airdyne assault bike interval style training. Um, I really personally like the, uh, airdyne assault bike. Um, it's low, imp- you know, it's low kind of impact on the joints. It's, we can use it in the of a camp to still get peak performance, but without, you know, completely exhausting someone and, and crushing them there. They're doing a lot of other training. Some of these athletes are training two, three, four times a day. Yeah. I, and it's very similar um, to what you would see with swimmers where a lot of the conditioning work that they are getting is in the pool. Uh, the difference being with swimmers, we do have an off season and I like to really take advantage of that off season, but, but through that off season, we need to maintain uh, their cardiovascular work as best as we can. And we do that through things like Concept 2 Row or the Aerodyne bike that you had mentioned. I'm a fan of the Aerodyne for sure. Concept 2 seems to work the, regardless of if it is the, the rower or the or their bike. Uh, the Assault Air bike is pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, good. There's some good information there. One of the things yeah, we talked about. Oh no! I was. I was. I think. It, I think it's pretty. Pretty universal there. Like you said about swimming, it's. It's similar. I think a lot of different sports are starting to take that similar approach, especially in their off-season training. One of the things I like about doing conditioning work for an athlete, even like a swimmer, that isn't necessarily sport-specific, is it kind of gives some of the joints a little bit of a chance to recover during the off-season. So less likelihood of overuse injury while still building up that their cardiovascular and just generally their aerobic capacity, VO2 max, those kind of things. Absolutely. So where do you, there's a wide swath of different combat sports. So I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a few ways we could go with this, but what, what do you tend to disagree with most with traditional fight coaches, be it boxing or MMA or whatever, whatever it happens to be? 
Yeah, definitely. So one, one of the areas that I, that I, I struggle with, you know, really finding its place is when I first started to get into the strength conditioning for combat sports, um, circuit training was, was, you know, the craze that was, that was, that was big. I, I'm sure it still find its, find its way into training uh, these days as well, but just kind of setting up these very random uh, array of exercises and, and conditioning, you know, tools and, you know, timing the, uh, various intensities, different, it, it, a little bit like, me, you know, metabolic conditioning. Um, but what I was finding is that people weren't necessarily getting better. You were just making them really tired, right? So you could really beat somebody up. I mean, I could put you on every machine in the gym and I'm sure you would eventually get tired. You would get sore. You would a, a whole bunch of different effects, but was it really making the athlete better? And what I found out from even personally doing some of these circuits that, uh, you know, a coach would set up, I didn't really find myself better. I just found myself by the third exercise saying, well, I'm really tired <laughs> and now I'm going to have to go, you know, hit the, hit a sledgehammer off a tire after I'm already exhausted. I, I agree. And, and again, one of the things that this relates to one of my main populations of swimmers is that these, you know, we're, we're talking about two populations here that just like to grind. They like to feel tired because they, they equate that feeling of being tired with success. And when, when you are dealing with like a longer distance swimming event, or when you start getting into those third and fourth rounds of, of a fight, um, you know, you start to start to break down and, and you feel that that value of being able to grind. But one of the other things that, that I, I've noticed that's a problem with that, that circuit style training, which is so common, is that not only is it, is it common just by happenstance, but if you look at like a collegiate program or, or even what the, the NSCA, the CSCS, what they advocate for is that circuit style training. And usually I think that just happens to be because uh, a lot of, a lot of the certification, the certification bodies, uh, even going through collegiate uh, exercise science programs, they're very geared towards large team strength and conditioning programs. So they're just trying to utilize, they're trying to maximize use of the weight room rather than maximize the athletic potential of an individual athlete. was, you know, definitely a point that I wanted to make that a lot of these bodies that are, you know, you're certifying, you know, coaches to be, you know, whether or not they end up in football, swimming, track and field, you have many athletes at a time, right? I tend to work a little bit more one-on-one -on -one and I, I think you're, you're similar like that. I know you do do work with teams, but you know, so they're trying to think, yeah, timing, uh, space of the, of the weight room they have, those all play into that, which sometimes, you know, it, it does, I, I would say affect the actual overall training, but you're, you're working with what you have for lack of a better word. I, I, if you are in a situation where you need, where you have, you know, maybe a dozen athletes at a time, like say, you, say you have to do strength work for for the entirety of of a of a of, a, of like a, an MMA team during their during their practice, I think it is feasible to to do circuit style training, but have it broken down into so have like an A circuit followed by a B circuit. So initially start out with some primary exercises like you would see maybe maybe a squat and then a filler exercise like a bottoms up kettlebell press or something like that. And then kind of work your way down into the into the less compound movements as you kind of work through the, the training program. So maybe a second circuit would involve something like lunges, these kind of things. It's still feasible, I think, but you know, not not in not the way it's currently being done on just Nautilus equipment. Yeah, it's it definitely has its place. I think um um, in, in, uh, Florida right now at American top team, uh, Phil DeRue is a strength conditioning coach for combat sports there. I think he does a really good job. You're going to be seeing his name a lot more in the strength and conditioning community. I think he does a good job using some of the, uh, the West side approaches to really being able to train eight, 
nine, 10 athletes at a time. And I think he's going to really be on the, on the cutting edge of, of performing what combat sports will look like, you know, strength conditioning wise going forward. Are you familiar with uh, Joe DeFranco? Yes. I love Joe DeFranco. That seems like the, something. He's definitely an OG in that field as well. What, what are, what are some of the lessons that you kind of take away from either, either this, this name Phil Giroux or, or Joe DeFranco for that matter? Um, I would say definitely, you know, for somebody like Joe DeFranco, I don't think he tries to do too much, right? He programs for what the, for what the needs are, for what the phase is. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't overstep. He works with uh, Mickey Gall, um, an up-and-coming fighter as well, who's in the UFC. And I, I think he's done a really good job. And he's been doing this for a long time. And he's, and he's definitely honed his craft there. Um, but he's also, you know, a, a little bit more of a West Side approach as well, where he follows certain, you know, certain training styles certain big lifts, um, followed by maybe an explosive movement as well. So for, for anyone that might be listening or watching that isn't familiar with, with West Side training, or, or we might use it interchangeably with the idea of conjugate training, that's basically just yeah. the idea that we're going to separate training into max effort days and then dynamic effort days. And the value of the dynamic effort days being that we're using sub, uh, sub-maximal load, somewhere between like 40 and 60%, and then just trying to focus on, on maximizing the acceleration and, and any of those lifts. Uh, which kind of takes a little bit of the burden off the central nervous system. And then you can also kind of play around with what we call accommodated resistance, like uh, band resistance or chain resistance, which, which definitely have some value, especially for athletes. I, I think a lot of people think that bands, band resistance is kind of more of an advanced training methodology, but I think it's fantastic for just building an athlete, just even from day one and something like a deadlift, just because it, an athlete can just once they kind of get to the knee the form can break down just because it doesn't it doesn't need to be great just because it gets so so much so easy as you you overcome some of those some of those biomechanical strength curves that you see with just as that weight starts to shift and as you add the resistance to that that band resistance kind of takes off some of that absolutely um, one of the things I believe uh, a Joe DeFranco principle that that I use regularly, I think this is something he does as well, is almost an absurd amount of band pull-aparts. Can you speak to that? Is that something that he does? Yes. Um, he is very big on all variations of, of band pull-apart. And for combat sports athletes, that is one of the number one things I see is how forward everyone is. I would say in general, as a population, we tend to be very forward. But with all the anterior move forward movement of punches that we do all the time in mixed martial arts, boxing, um, what have you, I see a lot of that very forward posture, you know, rhomboids, Rudell's not really doing what they're supposed to, to pull everything back. Um, so uh, definitely Joe DeFranco was probably one of the first people that I even remember in, when I got into this field, you know, really hammering a band pull apart. Yeah, that's uh, same same thing we use um, excessively with swimmers is is the idea of the band pull aparts. I I wanted to count last season during just the end season alone the the amount of pull aparts that we've done with some of those athletes. But we start them out in week one, even with some of the more experienced guys, somewhere between twenty five and fifty pull aparts, depending on their experience with with their their experience level with it per day. And then by the end of the season, they're up to you know one hundred and fifty pull aparts just just before practice even starts. Absolutely. I don't think you can do enough of band pull parts in a, in a banded face pull or some type of face pull. I think that's really, really goes a long way. Even, even just for, you know, from a personal standpoint, you know, you're sitting right here doing a lot of work on the computer these days. Um, I do, I try to maintain just not necessarily a daily total, but I try to maintain like a weekly total of about 500 pull parts a week. Uh, that, that number, fortunately I have a TRX suspension trainer here. So while we're in quarantine, I've been able to kind of utilize that to kind of train the mid back as well. But 
Um, Absolutely. That, I think that's vital. I've actually, I've actually used that. I've actually used your method on that instead of programming more of like, you know, three sets and four sets of 10 or 12 pull parts for maintenance. I think like over a week now, a hundred or over a week of say a clamshell, how many over a week. And I, I prefer that approach. I actually enjoy that. I think for something like when you're, when you are looking at the back and, and it, we have, it's more of a postural consideration then. Um, so there's tonic muscles and there's phasic muscles. And with the phasic muscles, they're what we'd consider like performance muscles where we're looking for explosiveness and force. Uh, whereas with some of these uh, tonic muscles, it, they maintain t uh, tone or tension in the body. And that's what we're dealing with with something like the band pull apart is by, by doing them over time and looking at doing pull parts over the course of a week, you could just kind of throw in, you know, a set of 20 during a commercial break and things like this, this, this accumulation throughout the time, it slowly helps build posture. If you were to look at, uh, if you were to look at it from, from a standpoint of just the law of averages with regards to the amount of time that you're doing the exercise, if you do a set of a hundred, it's, it's over in, in a matter of five minutes. But if you do a set of, you know, even if, if you just time that by five over the course of a week, that number goes up, uh, exponentially just because it you're you're doing it with more frequency throughout the week and it just again it just average it literally helps average out your posture right right i find that um you know the more i program also sets and reps uh the quality tends to go down so i prefer the total over time instead of that three four sets i, I notice you know people start getting those upper traps involved and we start using things you shouldn't do for that pull apart yeah i agree i think and that's that's something i, I think people People hear me talk about the traps and 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 kind of maximizing uh, the input of the traps to help balance out the posture. And I think too frequently people assume that I'm talking about what is traditionally thought about in gym lingo as the traps, which is just that that superior innervation of the traps. When we're actually talking about that that uh, that middle and lower innervation of the trapezius right. as well. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think the band pull apart is, is such a, I think it, you know, for people out there that can't really get home equipment right now or, or in general, just kind of looking for some, some, one of the most effective pieces of strength equipment I think you can get just, just to have available at home is, is a mini band, just red, the red band, either from Elite FTS or from Westside Barbell, they tend to work pretty well. And I think they're only, you'll pay more for shipping than you will for the band because it's, it's six or seven bucks. Absolutely. And to, you know, to touch on a little bit more on Joe DeFranco, I think another one, especially during this time, what we're dealing with a lot of, you know, home workouts and park workouts. Um, I'm big and I know he was one of the first proponents of the fat grips. Oh, to yeah. Attach. So I found, I found those even useful. <laughs> there he is right there. I found those even useful for attaching to bands at home for rows and different variations. Um, but in general, for strength and conditioning for mixed martial arts, you could, uh, you could really work some of the grip, uh, the grip training using those on a couple different exercises on whether it be pull up or chin up, just making sure not to over overdo it. And then, you know, start getting some of that, you know, tennis elbow and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I think people, I think it's almost a marketing mess with fat grips. I think they, I think people assume too much that it's just some bodybuilding thing to help, yeah. help engage more mass or whatever it says right on it. Ultimate arm builder. But in reality, I think it's, I think it's one of the ultimate corrective tools, just kind of, you know, we're so used to, to, to gripping a, a barbell and dumbbell that's at like approximately the same handle size and, and that grip's not really getting a whole lot of variety in terms of its stimulation. So, so to kind of expand on the grip a little bit is, is definitely fantastic. For grip work as well, I, I like uh, the plate pinches. I think they are a fantastic exercise. Absolutely. So w w when you are talking about combat sports, you're usually talking 
at least in some capacity about uh, grappling. So a very grip dominant. What other kind of grip work are you doing besides, or even including the fat grips? Yeah, definitely. So I like um, play pinches are great. I'm a big fan of play pinches, but I also enjoy even a, you know, more of a farmer's walk uh, kettlebell carry. I know, you know, we maybe not necessarily look at grip directly right away on there, but I do like to program that. I think, oh, you know, over a long haul, a certain amount of meters on those, some, some great grip work is definitely achieved there. I, one of the things I like about the, the, the farmer's carry, regardless of the implement, is, is just what we call that irradiation where, where not only do you get just that, that, that tensile strength kind of in the grip, but what actually happens is, like I mentioned, that, that irradiation where not only are you generating more tension through the grip, but you also gener generate more tension through the rotator cuff. So although it just seems like a grip exercise, those, those farmer's carries are actually a, a pretty fantastic exercise for, for maintaining the integrity of, of the rotator cuff. And if you just, if you, even just to consider what the rotator cuff is, categorically the rotator cuff is it's comprised of four muscles whose, the category is derived from the, defin the fact that these four muscles keep the humerus in place. So just in the very nature of what the function of the rotator cuff is combined with the, the act of doing the farmer's carry, you are by the very nature of keeping your arm steady, engaging that rotator cuff, which I think is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, the farmer's carry, I like, a lot, there's a lot of other loaded carries I like as well beyond just the farmer's carry, suitcase carry. Um, one of the ones I've been, I've been actually using uh, as a bit of a conditioning set is, or with, with some conditioning work is uh, double overhead carries. I think just mm -hmm. because uh, the act, uh, so I've been pairing that a lot with either a prowler push or like a plate sprint. Um, it, and the, though the weight is relatively light that you're carrying in like a double overhead kettlebell carry, uh, one of the things that I like about that for what it does for something like a combat sports or, or for swimming or anything where, where conditioning really comes into play is the fact that it actually it, it hinders the body's ability to breathe. So while the load isn't all that intense, it kind of still, uh, it engages that rotator cuff, but it also really uh, prevents you from getting a full recovery between bouts of either plate pushes or sled sprints. Absolutely change, you know, puts a little additional stress on the body in between that would, you know, would not necessarily a rest period between the sprints. I think one of the thing, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Dan John or some of the strength and conditioning coaches like that, but, but they, they like the idea or the act of tumbling almost as a corrective, just because it, it's, it's not so easy to categorize and your, your body's kind of moving all over the place, gets that, that spine to move a little bit more than it might otherwise do on a daily right. basis. So on one hand, I think, Combat sports can be can be in, in a certain regard, especially at a very rudiment, at a low level. It can be a corrective tool, but I think as we get a little as the athletes get a little bit more advanced, some of the corrective benefit of it is lost just because it becomes a, a postural adaptation over time to just be kind of down and forward like that. Right. One of the things I wanted to mention here, um, and, I, and I thought you know maybe uh, you might be able to speak to this as well, but I think a lot of times, and especially now where a lot of athletes are really limited to, uh, to at home and body weight training while we're in quarantine, uh, this is something people will, will see. But I think even outside of that, something that we see with something like uh, combat sport athletes is um, 
uh, an over-reliance on body weight training where they, they'll, they'll run for their lower body for, to keep that in shape. But then for their upper body, they, they're thinking slightly in terms of balance because they're thinking, all right, if I do a push, I got to do a pull. So they'll do push-ups and then they'll try to balance out the push-ups with pull-ups. But I don't think right. people realize that because the plane is, we're, we're moving in a different plane, what happens is push-ups and pull-ups actually exacerbate the same underlying shoulder abnormalities. So both, so we're thinking in terms of what looks to be anatomical opposites, which is that those pecs and those lats, but they're actually both shoulder internal rotators. So although people think they might be doing something good for themselves by trying to achieve balance, those two on top of each other, are both good exercises, but they, do, they, don't, they don't achieve balance. It could actually exacerbate shoulder issues. Absolutely. We throw in, you know, instead of that horizontal pull, we're throwing in that overlines on the vertical pull. And we might not realize how much of that we're continuing to do, especially, you know, look at it look at, look at right now. Our situation is a park workout for the most part. If someone that can't work out inside, they're going out to a park, right? What are they doing? Push-ups and pull-ups on whatever equipment they can get their hands on. Another thing I could imagine combat sports athletes kind of being really interested in, uh, you could probably speak to this is the idea of just core work. I'm sure uh, there's a, a big segment of this population, much like there is in swimmers, that just want to yep. do. They just want to bang out a lot of sit-ups and pl- and even yeah. even if they want to do planks, they want to they want to hang into that plank for ten minutes. What kind of what kind of core or ab work do you do you uh, program for your athletes, or do you like to see with them? For sure, I've been pretty pretty adamant on this for a long time. I'm a big anti-rotational core exercise. I don't you know I like a lot of different you know different presses. Uh, band resistant presses or doing you know stir the pot or rollouts on a, on a physio ball so i my athletes very rarely are doing any type of traditional crunch or you know anything like that a sit-up it's very rare i've been the one thing that i've been reintroducing into my program that i got away from for a long time was the idea of the russian twist i got away from that just because it kind of is, does have a little bit of that of that um of that flexion nature but I think with some some kind of weighted implement in hand, the, the range of motion is limited from one side to the other. So it's not as though that range of motion is getting bigger and bigger and, and kind of kind of destroying that spinal integrity just because it's a fixed end on each side. So it becomes a little bit more, um, it does become a little bit more controlled than, than might otherwise seem. Sure. I think a lot of it too is, um, you know, the exercise itself might not be inherently dangerous. It's how you're performing that exercise. The quality of the movement of that exercise can really play into, you know, like you're saying, if someone wants to knock down a bunch of crunches, they most likely get to a certain point, they become really sloppy. You're pulling up on the neck. It's just the, the reward from that is, is small. Yeah. I, one of the, I, I, another flexion based exercise I really like is the reverse crunch, but that mm-hmm. same thing can happen with that. I mean, if, if you're going all the way, so with the reverse crunch, the arms are anchored and you're bringing the legs up kind of with the leg, with the legs in a bent position, kind of bringing your knees up to your chin. Um, you know, that people could, people could really butcher that. And like you said, it, it's, it's all about um, execution as opposed to, to necessarily the, the inherent danger within the exercise. Um, I think with that, you could go from if you you could easily perform uh, 60 terrible looking reps or you could perform 10 solid ones that are a real struggle if you're manipulating the way you're breathing and kind of um, exhaling on, on the on the negative portion of the exercise not really getting any bounce off of the feet on the way up these kind of things and that becomes a hell of an exercise 
No, absolutely. Um, I actually noted that when I was at Cressy Sports Performance in September, I noticed an awful lot of, you know, that reverse crunch position of maybe from with the kettlebell or, or using a beam behind. I, I noticed that was pretty, that was pretty across the board being used. Uh, one of the things I just started doing personally, just because I have been doing so many reverse crunches as of late to, to kind of progress them, I've been using band resistance. So imagine, you know, I have, I have some kind of, uh, I'm, I'm on the ground, I'm, I'm anchored to something behind, behind and, and slightly overhead, and I'm bringing those legs up. Well, I'll actually progress that with band tension just by, by keeping some kind of, uh, keeping a band kind of around the hips and then anchored somewhere kind of below where my feet are and just pulling against that really helps, um, helps kind of engage those abs a little bit. And it's also inherently corrective on, specifically on, on athletes with any of that lower cross syndrome as, as you see so commonly with people that are in extension-based sports. Absolutely. So I didn't want to get too off topic there, but I was just going to throw into that. Um, how do you feel about kind of the anterior pelvic tilt as far as athletes go? Do you, do you t uh, tend to overcorrect? Do you leave it alone if you don't see it creating much of a problem? How do you approach that? I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think inherently it's that anterior pelvic tilt is an adaptation. So there is definitely benefit to that. I mean, if you look at if you look at a horse or if you look at like a silverback gorilla, I mean, they it just they they're almost they're borderline lordotic where they they're really kind of getting that extended position. So I think there might sure. be value in that. I think when you look at something like Homo sapiens, though, um, when that posture becomes too extreme, the issue becomes the fact that you're not getting as much out of the glute max as you otherwise could be getting. So Absolutely. my big thing is ensuring that we're not seeing, we're not kind of delving into the realm of lower back pain and that we're still right. getting a lot of good uh, force output from the glutes. Absolutely. So I, I think it, it's inherently correct. It's inherently a sports adaptation, but at the same time, we don't want to let it kind of fall off the rails. I, I'll always try to correct for it. But mm -hmm. it, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. For swimmers, I really try to correct for it because there's a handful of reasons. That it has. So with swimmers, you see like the that rectus femora starts to tighten up just because they're kicking so much. So as, as they're kicking, that, that hip muscle, that hip flexor, that rectus femoris is pulling that, that hip further and further forward. And right. what that, that leads just really bad stroke economy. It just leads to a really bad position in the water. So some position, some people I worry about it more than others. Um, in the case of like a football player, maybe not so much just because they are getting something out of it. Um, as long as they're capable of the other thing, as long as they're capable of still performing like a, an ass to grass squat without too much of a, of a butt wink, I think it, I think there's, there's not too much of an issue there, but I, right, it I, is, always the, the other problem with it is just the the more you get out of uh the more that center of gravity starts swaying kind of forward and backwards the right. more it's going to sway forwards and backwards so if i'm you know from a side position if my butt starts kind of coming behind me and my chest starts kind of shooting out in front of me what you're what's happening is you're just putting over time more and more load is being placed on that spine because right. of gravity pulling down on the chest and less of it being stacked over over the spine right that's what i see that's my final question on that i wanted to, to touch on was do you see um people more prone to it anatomically do you see certain you know certain uh people more prone you know to to developing anterior pelvic tilt i th i think just i think 
it's a remnant of evolution. I, I just, I do not, I think just as a species, we're prone to back pain and we are prone to that anterior pelvic tilt in the first place. Um, I don't necessarily think that it, I, I don't think it, I don't think it just falls into one population or the other. I mean, athletic populations or desk jockeys, I think they're, they're both, they're both succumbing to anterior pelvic tilt, but just for, for opposite reasons. In the case of, in the case of just a desk jockey where we're like I said before about the idea of the phasic versus tonic muscles well these uh, muscles that should be tonic muscle or phasic muscles muscle performance based muscles like you'd see in the rectus femoris they're just completely underutilized so that that tonic muscle that that tight muscle that erectors that the lower back that becomes right. just chronically tight without having any kind of antagonistic relationship with with right. erectus abdominis um, so I think, and then if you look at like a, a high-end athlete, I think they're coming into the same thing, but just because the propensity for that erector spinae to, to, to maintain tension is so much higher than the rectus abdominis that there's just going to be an inherent dysfunction unless it's, unless it's addressed in a meaningful way. So yeah, I think it's across the board. I think you could almost just, you know, I do a lot of individualized corrective programs, but even if I were to not right. see someone or even do an assessment, I could almost say that we should be doing some kind of work to address any kind of anterior pelvic tilt that they may or may not even have or, or manifesting symptoms of as of yet. Sure. I guess, you, yeah, you can you definitely make the argument that plenty of athletes have it and they perform just fine, right? I mean. Um, the other thing you see is... Um, like something like a, a cat cow exercise, something you'd see actually more commonly in yoga, I think just because, you know, we might see back dysfunction in either uh, a, a lay population or an athletic population, but they're actually coming from two different, um, in the case of athletes, uh, any kind of uh, back issues or back pain is usually caused by what we'd call uh, so with an athlete, it would be flexion intolerant back pain. So they're so used to being hyperextended and, and, and just kind of, they're, they're more, so you know with athletes that um, they're more prone to back pain from like sitting for long bouts of time, whereas people that are sitting more frequently are more prone to, to back pain from standing for longer periods of time. But ultimately it kind of comes down, it comes down to that anterior pelvic tilt. But one of the nice things about that cat-cow is kind of being in that big rounded position and that big extended position, it kind of matter, it, it, it helps both of those populations simultaneously by addressing both flexion and extension. Um, the other thing I, I like for maintaining spinal health is, is rotary stuff, just because rotary work, like sideline T-spines or half-kneeling wall T-spines, these kind of things, they, it, it tends to be a catch-all and just making the spine better. And you never really Absolutely. see... I was just saying, you, know, you never see a spine that's too mobile. It's just, it, you know, it can happen. But even in hypermobile people where they might have a collagen deficiency or something, it, I don't think it's ever the case for on, on population-wide basis that people are, are too mobile in the spine. If you look at uh, even just meta-analysis of people with back pain, it's almost always that the spine is too rigid. So just kind of working through mobilizing that spine in a rotary manner. Uh, in a rotational manner is something that's going to benefit almost everyone, be it people suffering from uh, flexion intolerant back pain or extension intolerant back pain, and either, which in either case manifests itself as that anterior pelvic tilt. No, I'm glad you touched on that because that was one of my, since we're on this topic of some, you know, preventatives uh, slash correctives would be done for, for combat athletes and, and the population in general. Um, I notice a lot of lack of adequate mobility. I struggle with this myself a bit in the, in the thoracic spine region. Um, do you, and you kind of touched on that. Do you see that, you know, pretty much universally across the board? 
regardless uh, of athlete or population? Yes, for the most part. I think everyone, for most populations can benefit from thoracic spine work. Um, but I think a lot of the times, it's one of the other things that we need to address that's actually usually a function of that tight thoracic spine is kind of an imbalance. So there's two joints within the shoulder muscle, within the, within the shoulder capsule. And as that thoracic spine gets too tight, the other uh, joint has to take over a little bit more of, of, of that range of motion and makes it a little bit hypermobile in, in one aspect, but, but just chronically tight in the other. So working on that thoracic spine is always, always gonna be a fantastic idea. Um, but with that, I like doing external rotations as well. A lot of rotator cuff work, like I said. So we need to make that rotator cuff work as well as it can just to kind of maximize the develop the, the ongoing progress in mobility to that thoracic spine over time. Um, so that's something I, I look at with that thoracic spine. But but not one of the issues you could you could you could mobilize the thoracic spine till the cows come home. But if you have chronically tight lats and chronically tight pecs, I mean you're it's basically a battle between spinal mobility and just two chronically tight stakes that are sitting on the front of you and the back of you. And I mean, just those sure. just to have, have, it's almost as though having adequate range of motion in the pecs and the lats is a prerequisite to spinal mobility. And one of the things I like to do for that is, um, is overhead hangs, just dead hangs on a pull-up bar, straight arms, yep. just kind of, you know, you get that added benefit of working on that grip. But in addition to that, you're just getting that, that active, that decompression of the spine, which I think is, is so fantastic. Definitely. I, I, you know, include a lot of those close grip hangs, um, dependent on, you know, different, different uh, people and different issues, but I definitely incorporate a lot of those. That's something um, that I'll do with most, I'd say probably it's in most of my athlete development programs, the majority of the time, but the majority of our athletes, I've seen it at least once. So I'd say probably 80 or 90% of athletes who come through ruthless performance have performed uh, an, an overhead hang at some point. Just, but it's usually, it's usually just something we do in the cool down, just kind of as a way to just kind of get them overhead. The more athletes are overhead, the better off they'll be. Absolutely. And then my final question on that to, to build off that, you know, with, I, I believe quantity or, you know, is, is less important to the, the quality of these movements. Do you think it'd be beneficial for someone to really get assessed before they just start throwing in lackadaisically, you know, uh, T-spine work and different things? Uh, to, to get the most out of it, sure. But I think with something as rudimentary as like a, as an overhead, like as a dead hang, I think almost everyone's going to benefit from that because, right. you know, again, just kind of going back to our evolutionary roots here. I mean, you're looking at, you're looking at a population of primates that were at one point overhead much more commonly. I mean, climbing, climbing through trees, swinging from vine to vine, these kind of things. So this, this adaptation to chronically tight pecs and chronically tight lats, I think is just, um, I, I think it, it's common among the majority of the population. You know, we're, we're almost, almost no one has ever overhead. I don't think there, it's not as though overhead hangs are something where you're really pushing, perpetually pushing the range of motion. There's a fixed goal in mind. You're never trying to get beyond that overhead position. We're never, we're not, it's not as though we're trying to reach that arm further and further back with, with each right. subsequent time in the bar. So just the, the act of being overhead is, is going to be good. Sometimes there are bony limitations. I'll concede that, but the, the likelihood of, of bony limitations preventing someone from getting overhead is, is more likely to be an excuse than a, a real anatomical limitation nine times out of 10. Sure.
uh, yeah, the, but the pull-up bar hangs, I think, are always fantastic. I, I think one of the ways to tell if you should be doing uh, thoracic spine work, one of the easiest ways to tell if it's, if it's really a pressing issue is doing an assessment on something like a sideline T-spine. So lay on your side on the ground. Have, uh, say I'm laying on my left side. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have my left leg completely straight, but then I'm going to bend my right leg uh, to a 90 degree angle. And on my left side, I'm going to have that right leg over and that right knee touching the ground. With that, I'm going to have my arms out in front of me to the side on the ground. What I'm going to do is I'm going to flip the top hand over, which will be my right hand. And I'm going to try to work those fingertips uh, on the ground all the way around overhead until those arms are opposite each other. And if you can get those arms to be opposite each other, while you're still laying on that ground with that right knee fixed on the ground, um, then chances are you don't have too much of a thoracic spine limitation, but the chance of that happening is pretty low. Again, just like I said, with the, with the overhead work of doing a, uh, a pull-up bar hang, one of the other things, or, or two of the other things that, that athletes can really benefit from is just pec stretches and lat stretches. You know, regardless of if you want to screw around with spinal mobility exercises, I, I'll, I'll say that, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to worry about there, but not mess, there's almost never the case with, with pec stretches and lat stretches. That's just something you just, over the course of human history, we, we've done on, on almost a daily basis, just, just by, by the very nature of our existence. So just to, to stretch the pecs and lats, I think, are, are definitely something that we could, we could do on a, on a very regular, very frequent basis. No, I think that's helpful. I think it gets, you know, glossed over a lot, especially as athletes, they want to do the hardest workouts and they want to do the, the, you know, the most, but these little preventative measures can go a long way. So what do you think about, uh, even in a time like this where people are looking for body weight workouts, what do you think about uh, running? Uh, so this one, you know, we can go back and forth on. I don't think it's bad to inherently do a little road work. Um, if you're just want to get out of the house, do a little, you know, do a little jog, um, maybe you're jogging with a family member or something and you're, you know, some low, you know, low impact stuff like that. I'm not a big fan of traditional road work, especially for mixed martial artists or uh, jujitsu athletes, things like that. I just think there's times we could spend doing, you know, doing more important stuff, I, for lack of a better word, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of it. I think long-term, especially like I don't want to beat the, beat the continuous joint issues and knee issues and things like that. But I, I think there's, there's other things that can be done in place of the traditional road work of five, seven, eight miles a day. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think even to, to run, it's not, if you're going to run, you know, do it on a trail or something like that, where you're getting some additional ankle mobility kind of built into the, to the run itself, as opposed to just the constant perpetual pounding in the same exact plane, uh, in that fixed plane and that, that fixed strike, foot strike on the road, rep after rep after rep. Right. You're continually pounding the pavement. Um, one, you know, this is more, I see this more prevalent with, uh, with older boxing training more yeah, than totally. anything that totally. that's very you know and i i'll be honest i don't work with a ton or you know consult with a ton of boxers even though you know that is more certainly a combat sport you know the most one of the most popular um but i see that still kind of perpetually running through there of this this road work that you need to be doing five and seven miles a day um for for the cardiovascular method and i i don't i don't see it if if even if uh, even if I did want to concede just the value of of a, a, a of a robust cardiovascular system for some of these combat sport athletes, which I'll 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 only do begrudgingly, even even knowing that you know these rounds aren't going on for all that long, and it's not all that long Absolutely. of a thing. 
Um, I still think if someone does want to or really feels the need to build out that cardiovascular system, I'd say get a Concept2 rower and just just work up to, you know, uh, a, somewhere between a 1K and a 10K row. I think just the value that that places just by by building your aerobic capacity while focusing on on that row and just kind of building up that back, I think is a good combination. Yeah, you've definitely you've definitely uh, actually explained it to me in the, in the past about that. Like, and I think that's a great a great way to go about it without getting too in depth. I mean, when you're looking at a round in a a, a combat you know a situation or a jujitsu round, usually they're more in the first you know immediate you know energy systems you know intermediate systems, right? So they're they're the duration isn't crazy. So I prefer to work a little bit more there. And if someone wants to do you know some road work one or two times a week just for the feel of it, if that makes you you know please I, by all means I'm not you know I, I don't think that's going to do much in the in the uh, the grand scheme of things with any injuries or anything like that. One of the values I'll I'll, I'll I'll concede to long distance aerobic work is not necessarily that it's beneficial to the competition itself, but that it's beneficial to practice. So if you're rolling for two hours a day and your cardiovascular system is shit then by the end, you're not really gonna be building up your technique, be it in the pool or while, you're, while you are doing combat sport work, but you're actually just kind of struggling to stay afloat. Yeah, even literally. I, I, absolutely. I work, uh, I work with one uh, of my professional fighters, John Brennan, and he, you know, this, it's a big mental game too. You know, he gets out on the, on the road bike and really puts in miles on the bike and, you know, some, some runs and some jogs. I think there is something to be said for that mental component of, of just being able to push past certain, you know, you're a mile or two in and you want to push a couple more, you know, that that's fun too. But as performance wise, I, I do think there's, you know, there's better avenues to go down for, for that, uh, that type of work. Yeah, I, I agree with that and what you said about the, the, the mental component. And even, even from a, a confidence standpoint, just having, you know, when you do have two people that are directly pitted against each other, there's definitely got to be some kind of advantage to just, just to knowing that, you know, I'm willing to push myself further than the next guy, but you just don't want to do that just at the expense of, of your long-term physical performance and, and doing it kind of in, a, in an unconstructive manner where you're, where, where you're incurring a lot of wear and tear. On, on either the knees or the hips and so on. Yeah, you're using your, you still want to use that scientific approach, but make it applicable to being in the trenches daily. Yeah. All right. What, uh, what else is going on in your world these days? <sighs> Not much. Just trying to, like you were saying earlier, just trying to navigate this. Uh, this I think for a lot of fitness professionals, this is a relatively, you know, new, new change to, to adapt to. Um, I think the next couple months are going to be really telling on how successful, uh, especially in-person trainers will go in the future with how they can adapt to some of these uh, changes. Yeah, I think we're, we're so far atop Maslow's hierarchy of needs that, that, you know, focusing on, on what some might consider like vanity metrics, like what you'd see in the gym, it, it tends to be the first thing to go when as, as either revenue disappears or, or people's schedules get get messed up, so it, it it is interesting. One of the values of just kind of working with so many people that are that are that are perpetually motivated is they're they are they are not the first people to to kind of falter in, in times like this. It's one of the reasons I tend to stick away from like fat loss clients and things like that. Right, right. I think one of the things that's going to be on the on the block too coming up is this idea that if you are a trainer who trains in you know a commercial gym or you know even a private owned gym and who knows how long we'll be out of that capacity even being able to train clients in homes a lot of people are going to be very hesitant to doing that so i definitely think there's going to have to be a virtual component to a lot of a lot of the training going forward 
Yeah, and I think uh, one of the other things that we might see is more uh, more uh, commercial licenses, more commercial permits being allotted to uh, to to trainers and like say state parks and things like that, and more of a more of a public setting or more more of an open setting. Absolutely, that's pretty uh, pretty common in in Philadelphia and a lot of the parks, Washington Square, and House Park. You tend to see a lot of you know even on the on the a regular basis of you know clients uh, of trainers having their clients train in there one or two people at a time. I like the value of that, but I, I, I have so much, I, I'm so hesitant to, you know, you could do a hell of a lot in open field, but I don't think you can day in, day out. I, I, it's just a tool in toolbox. I mean, to, to not have access to, to cable systems and to not have access to dumbbells, I, I think, you know, you can, you can beat someone up and you could, you could give them a good training effect. You could maybe help them lose some fat, but overall, their long-term wellness could be can you can be hampered uh, just just in body weight exercises alone. And yeah, there's, there's I, so much evidence to substantiate that. I agree. Even just going off the very basic point of that is that your clients are used to training in a facility with different avenues to train and different things. So when you go out, you know, go out into a park and you're you're very limited. You kind of put that on them where they're like, well, this isn't exactly what I want to do. Yeah. So how long do you keep someone, you know, entertained doing that for lack of a better word? Yeah. I, I, personally, it's not getting it done for me whatsoever. I, I cannot stand these home workouts. I just no, feel stupid. I, I, that's across, that's across the board. I, I see, I, there's a, a few of my clients who actually aren't, you know, training with me virtually and that's, you know, that's totally fine. I, mm -hmm. I don't blame anybody for that. Yeah. One of the things that I, I do, you know, just, it's just partially as um, a function of what I do where I focus so much on corrective work. I think, I think you know, strength, fortunately coming into this, the more strength you have built up, it, strength isn't going to disappear. It's not going to dissipate as quickly as say uh, conditioning work, cardiovascular work. So you kind of, uh, it's kind of okay to kind of put that on the back burner to an extent, I would say. But one thing I think, you know, I'm one of the things that I'm, I'm very adamant that my clients still continue on. And even one of the things I'm advocating across the board is just to, to maintain a, a solid uh, foundation of mobility work on an almost daily basis. I mean, even four or five exercises, just really focusing on the hips, on the thoracic spine. I think it's, it's needed because to kind of to try to go back in the gym and, and perform some of the exercise, these exercises, um, just traditional strength, load-bearing exercises, even just not necessarily the weights are going to be affected, but also the physical uh, limitations are, are going to be present that some, some of these athletes haven't seen since they, their first couple of years of training. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, now wouldn't be the when gyms eventually do start opening back up. Now wouldn't be the time to hit your RP 10 here uh, right off the gate. So I, I do think it's important, like you're saying, to work some of that mobility, um, you know, in these times. And, you know, true strength takes a long time to build, but it also takes, you know, a long time to dissipate where that gas tank, you can build a pretty decent one in a few weeks or so, but <laughs> you can you can lose it fairly quickly as well. Yeah, that, I, I think that that's one of the one of the benefits of that is the fact that it cardiovascular your cardiovascular capacity goes away quick, uh, which is why even if, even if you see uh, like swimmers that are tapered towards the end of their season, they're fantastic for the event they're about to do. They're super sharp, but then just a, a couple of days later, just because their workload has decreased by so much during that taper, that their cardiovascular capacity. I mean, you got to build back into. They just had they just came off of having some of their best times of the year, but their cardiovascular capacity is also crap, which is which is a remarkable paradox. Right. Absolutely. Well, Colin, this was this was a good time. Um, I'm not sure when we'll have this posted yet. I'm thinking it'll probably be, uh, looks like, um, Sunday, 
May 3rd, um, depending, but I'm always happy to have you on and, and it's, you're, you're a remarkable guy and, and uh, I look forward to kind of having some porch beers with you when you find yourself back in Schuylkill County. No, I absolutely appreciate the time. Appreciate you getting some advice out there. Uh, I think it'd be really helpful in the future to some of these athletes. And, and likewise, I think what you're doing for combat sports is cool. And, and I wish you nothing but the, last, the, the best of success down in the city of brotherly love. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.